I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 18th of January. Today in Haiti, scenes of catastrophe. Our reporter Ed Pilkington is in Port-au-Prince. So you look around you and it's just like being on Mars or something. It's like being in a Terminator movie. Everywhere you look, it's just a mass of rubble. Broadcaster Andy Kershaw gives his reaction to the disaster. There ought to be an opportunity here for the fundamental reconstruction of the country that should have taken place years ago. And in other news today, the Foreign Secretary David Miliband tells The Guardian of his hopes for Afghanistan. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who's willing to respect the constitution of Afghanistan should be inside Afghan politics, not outside lobbing mortars at it. The UK's top doctors call for a blanket ban on man-made fats. Really, what we're calling for is a complete elimination of them from our food chain. And we join cider drinkers at a wassailing ceremony in Somerset. First, our top story. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is in Haiti, describing the catastrophic earthquake as one of the worst humanitarian crises in decades. Haiti's government says at least 100,000 have died. With aftershocks still rocking the wrecked capital, many Haitians have been fleeing to the countryside. The Guardian's Ed Pilkington is in Port-au-Prince, where he says thousands of bodies are left unburied. We've been down to what's called the Grand Cemetery in the centre of Port-au-Prince, which from the outside is quite an elegant little cemetery. It's lined with lots of tombs, mausoleums, some of which have been hit by the earthquake and slightly crumbled, but generally it's looking in fairly good shape. And amid this quite tranquil, beautiful place, we saw scenes of what can only be described as complete horror. As we entered into the cemetery, walked down the main sort of walkway, we saw on both sides of us piles of bodies which are now, by then were five days old, were covered in flies and sort of bloated and black and their skin peeling and were even being pecked up by chickens. It was a sort of horrendous sight. So there were about six bodies piled up in a handcart. As we're standing there, cars were driving in pretty much every 10 minutes or so with, with other bodies, mainly to place them in family tombs, but also there was dumping going on of bodies because what became clear as we talked to people was that families are not, who don't have much money and you know this is one of the poorest cities in the world are not able to raise the money to have a proper burial. So they've just been bringing their loved ones to the cemetery and laying them on the, on the floor of this walkway in the hope that they would avoid a, a, a mass grave where thousands of bodies are now being placed. In one tomb, we saw a family had opened up a tomb, but above it was written the word reparation. And when we asked what that meant, we were told it meant that this family didn't have the money to put the body in the tomb. A very distressing scene, really, and it sort of dovetails what we've been seeing around the rest of the town, which is bodies left on the street corners, on the side of the road, in some cases in the middle of the road, and just anonymously wrapped in cloth. No one knows who they are, no one knows what they're doing there. For the first time this morning, we've seen the first evidence of a single truck going around picking up bodies, and that's the very first time we've witnessed of a sort of clean-up operation, because up to now it's just been a scene of complete devastation, just bodies being abandoned in the street. So not much sign of clean-up operation. What about signs, Ed, of aid getting through? 
Well, this morning we're starting to see a bit more sign of it. But I have to say that it's incredibly sporadic. I mean, bear in mind that we've been driving through streets where, in some areas, almost every single house has collapsed. So you look around you and it's just like being on Mars or something. It's like being in a Terminator movie without being glib about it. I mean, that's what it looks like. Everywhere you look, it's just a mass of rubble. Families living crowded together on the hillside, other families living in the sort of central divider between lanes of traffic. I mean, everywhere there's a plot of public land. You've got tents made from improvised plastic sheets. People have nothing here. And yet, when you see signs of aid, they're incredibly few and far between. We've seen some water distribution. We've seen three garbage trucks picking up the litter from the street, which is coming a health hazard. Some sign of food distribution. We've seen UN has, we, we passed the UN, which had sort of armored cars with machine guns on them doing food supplies. They haven't begun to actually give it out. So there are signs. And we also saw it this morning overhead about three or four U.S. helicopters down by the port area. Stuff is happening. But what I think is happening is that the big logistical movements of supplies are going on. But what hasn't yet happened is that those big logistical supplies are reaching the people who need them. And bear in mind, this is six days on. It's fairly astonishing that very, very little is getting through to individuals. With people so desperate for essential supplies, food, water and medicine, there have been reports of looting. I mean, what's your impression of the security situation? This morning we went and we drove to the side of the street where there was a body in the street that was still smouldering. What had happened was a thief had tried to steal some fruit juice and he had a gun and was threatening this vendor on the street. Five policemen grabbed the thief and then we don't know whether the police handed over the thief to the crowd or the crowd grabbed the thief from the police. But either way, the crowd of about 12 men or maybe more, 20 men, got hold of the thief, beat him unconscious dumped him on a a pile of rubbish, poured more rubbish on top of him, and then, including a tyre, and then set it alight. And they burnt him to death. And this morning we saw the smouldering body still there in the street. So, yes, we now know there's thieves around, there is looting going on, and there is even lynching happening. So I think what's going on, although it's very, very difficult to tell, is that there's sporadic flare-ups of thieving, looting, violence, desperation and in some cases lynching that's going on there they're not massive they're not all over the place they're happening sporadically and in limited areas if a picture is being given back home by some reports of a sort of hellish situation of violence we don't think that's happening but there is clearly some degree of problem here Ed Pilkington in Port-au-Prince. Well, someone who knows the Haitian capital well is the broadcaster Andy Kershaw he's been to Haiti more than 20 times We've been desperately poor for a very long time. Although, you know, it has to be said that Haiti used to be called the Pearl of the Antilles. And going back to colonial times before the slave rebellion made Haiti the world's first black republic in 1804, Haiti was the richest country in the Caribbean, the richest island in the Caribbean. I'll say that again because it seems impossible now. Haiti was the richest colony, the richest island in the Caribbean. But it's, it's not anymore by a long shot the richest island there. But it's because of the way people live, John, in Haiti, that the scale of the debt arising from this earthquake will be so enormous and bigger than they would be had an earthquake of similar magnitude happen anywhere else in the world. And it's because Haitians, basically, because they're poor, 
live on top of each other in very, very crowded conditions. A lot of those houses, most of those houses, are very shoddily built, again because of poverty, and because of overpopulation, the pressure of people moving from the countryside into the city looking for work, again poverty, the very overcrowded and the topography of Port-au-Prince, it's like a big ball ringed by mountains, the city centre. And the ring of mountains are also densely populated. Lots and lots of shoddily built houses built on very, very steep hillsides. When the earthquake struck, those things basically slid down the hillside and into one another. So you had like a domino effect of all these shanties collapsing on top of each other. And again, because of poverty, there's been, over the years, just immense deforestation in Haiti. People cut down all the trees to the extent that if you fly in from the Dominican Republic next door and you look out of the window of the aeroplane, you can see the border between the Domrep and Haiti because the Domrep's green and Haiti's brown. They cut down all the trees because they were poor and they needed fuel and that fuel, the most available fuel to them, was charcoal. So it did two things. It meant it devastated agriculture in the countryside and it also made the soil very vulnerable. Erosion is a big problem with rivers and floods and things like that. But on an occasion like this, when there's been a big earthquake, that soil moves and it moves from underneath your house, especially if you're living on one of those hillsides in Port-au-Prince. Do you think that the unimaginable scale of this disaster will spur the world to act in a way that it hasn't really done before? Because in the past, Haiti's been more or less ignored, hasn't it? It's been ignored, and the way also not been ignored, but the way that that situation in Haiti has been maintained, or even the way it's been exacerbated, has been scandalous. You can't blame it on the United States completely, but policies towards Haiti have not been helpful in the past. Yes, it ought to be an opportunity for the rest of the world to wake up to the scandal that's been Haiti for far too long, the way that people have had to live there and the way that those conditions have been encouraged by the foreign policies of certain other countries. And now there ought to be uh, an opportunity here for the fundamental reconstruction of the country that should have taken place years ago. Andy Kershaw. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash world slash Haiti. Also on The Guardian's website, Emma Sturgis reviews Mr Underhills as the best restaurant in Britain, according to the latest Harden's Guide. Our design critic Jonathan Glancy considers the merits of disguising phone masts as trees. And Patrick Barker on the life and death in Afghanistan of a young British soldier, Phil Allen. Here's a clip from an audio slideshow on the site today. We think of soldiers as brave and courageous, and Phil was all of those, but he was also not a stereotypical soldier in that he had huge interests beyond soldiering. He was a very talented musician, he'd been a young actor at school and become what senior officers called a perfect soldier. And you'll find that audio slideshow on Rifleman Phil Allen by Patrick Barkham, along with the other things I mentioned at guardian.co.uk slash g2. Let's stay with Afghanistan now. The President Hamid Karzai is attempting for a third time to assemble a cabinet after more than half the names on his second list of nominees were rejected by Afghan MPs. The US and Britain need Karzai to get his team in place before next week when an international conference on Afghanistan is held in London. Well, one of the nominees who was approved by Parliament is Zarar Ahmed Mokhbel. He's accused of corruption and incompetence at the Interior Ministry, but now he's leading Karzai's battle against the drugs trade. Our diplomatic editor Julian Borger asked Britain's Foreign Secretary David Miliband what he thought. 
I think that overall the appointments uh, to the cabinet are of very high quality people. The defence minister, uh, the finance minister, the foreign minister, the interior minister, all of whom I met yesterday, are of very high quality. It seems that in the ministries of energy, we've got high quality people as well. Now, we will look at every ministry and make sure that any support or engagement or funding that we provide is going to be used for the purposes uh, that it was intended, and that is for the benefit of the people of Afghanistan and on the military side, uh, ultimately for building the sort of security that can uh, ensure our own security. Any concerns that we have will be followed through very, very carefully, and uh, obviously the counter-narcotics is important, and we will liaise very closely with our allies, but British people should be assured their money isn't going to go to any purposes other than those it's intended for. Could that mean that British funding for counter-narcotics efforts by the Afghan government could be cut off if we don't consider Mokbel to be a reformed character or to have question marks over, over his integrity? Well, I'm not going to use this interview to start making threats or to uh, start making announcements. What we know is that Britain has been the leader in paying money through the Afghan government because we've been assured, including by independent audits, I think by Pricewaterhouse, that the money is going to be properly used. But we will not allow a situation to occur where British people can have concerns that their money is going to the wrong uses. Does Karzai have a job to do when he comes to the London conference to convince the West in general who are sending troops, spending lives and resources in Afghanistan that his government has fundamentally changed, is not as corrupt as this reputation has suggested? I think we all have a job to do to explain to uh, British people, people from the 70 nations represented in London, uh, that uh, there is a coherent plan, uh, that it is tuned to the realities of life in Afghanistan and the nature of the insurgency. Uh, So on the part of the international community, we have to step up our game. We have to make sure that we are ready for uh, 2010 and the challenges here, not the challenges of 2005. Uh, In respect of the Afghan government, they're also on a new start because they've got a, a, re- a new government, a re-elected president, some renominated ministers and some new ministers. But we all know that 2010 needs to be a decisive year in Afghanistan. The momentum needs to be uh, reversed away from a deepening insurgency towards the empowerment of the Afghan people, who we know from the BBC poll of last week desperately don't want to go back Uh, to the misrule of the Taliban, desperately want to govern their own society, know that in the interim they need international forces to help protect them, but they want to see uh, Afghan uh, forces built up so that they can defend themselves. So what's the benchmark for success at London? I think there are two sets of benchmarks for the London conference. First, I want people who are listening and watching with an independent mind to go away and think, yes, there is real clarity about the plan, and I have real confidence about how, that it can be implemented. That's the first thing I want people to, to sense. Secondly, uh, there are some real deliverables that we need. We need on the security front to clarify how the Afghan forces are going to step up to take lead security responsibility. On the economic front, we need to make sure that Afghanistan has a, a, a viable economic future, and that's why we're talking to the IMF uh, as well as to the World Bank and others about how to build that. On the governance front, we need to be clear that the drive against corruption, what President Karzai said in his inaugural speech, a drive against the culture of impunity will be carried forward, that local governance of high quality will be developed, and that the reintegration effort, the drive to ensure that those who are currently fighting against their communities are actually brought into their communities to defend them, takes place. 
And finally, we need some real deliverables on the uh, international coordination. We need to make sure that the international community is a good partner, not a confusing partner to deal with. And that's something where the EU, uh, the UN and NATO all have a role to play. David Miliband talking to Julian Borgia. Leading doctors say Britain should join Denmark, New York, California, Switzerland and Austria in banning man-made fats. Artificial trans fats are found in thousands of foodstuffs, including biscuits, ready meals and margarine. But the UK Faculty of Public Health, which represents 3,300 doctors, says trans fats can cause heart disease and should be prohibited. Its president is Professor Alan Marion Davis. Trans fats are are known to be a form of food energy that can upset the the balance of the fatty substances in the bloodstream, in particular the cholesterol levels and the other fatty substances like triglycerides. And by doing that, they uh, greatly increase the risk of coronary heart disease in particular, you know, heart attacks and angina, that sort of thing. So they're bad news, really, and they're not necessary in our food. They, They don't have any particular nutritional value. Really, what we're calling for is a complete elimination of them from our food chain. How do trans fats differ from other fats used in food products? They're a kind of hybrid fat in a way. We're all familiar with saturated fats, you know, the sort of so-called bad fats, the the ones that we know push up the risk of heart disease and strokes. These are the fats that come from mainly from um, fatty meats and from dairy products. And we're also familiar with the unsaturated fats, the ones that come mainly from plant sources like sunflower oil, olive oil, etc., which are good fats. These are the unsaturated ones. You can also get them from fish oils as well. So those are the the good fats, if you like. But trans fats are um, a hybrid, really, which are produced artificially, mainly either in the form of margarine and and other products used in baking, or when uh, oils are used in frying and they're reused, you can get some conversion into these trans fats and and they're the ones that can cause the harm. What effect then would a ban on these artificial trans fats have on public health? Well, at the moment, only about just over 1% of our food energy comes from these trans fats. But even though it's such a relatively small amount of the calories we take in actually come from these substances, nevertheless, they do have a disproportionate effect on the risk of heart attacks and angina and strokes, etc. So we feel that by taking them out of the diet altogether, or as much as we can anyway, you can never get them out completely because some of them are produced naturally. But if you can get them down as low as possible, then it could reduce coronary heart, the risk of coronary heart disease by about 5%, which is, uh, although that doesn't sound much, that's actually quite a substantial um, reduction in risk when you look at the numbers of people who get heart attacks and angina, etc. Well, the government says that there isn't any need for a ban because average consumption of these artificial trans fats is only half the recommended maximum. Uh, what do you say to that? The problem is that the sort of, there are people who eat uh, more than the average of these substances are, uh, tend to be people on low incomes who eat a lot of takeaway food, a lot of fried food, a lot of cheap biscuits and, and, and pastries and pies and things like that. And there are a lot of health inequalities in here. So in a way, just looking at the average consumption doesn't much help us. We're concerned about the people who um, eat more than average of these things, and it could be a, a higher proportion of their diet. And those are the ones we're really trying to pr- protect by suggesting that we, we lower the, the level as close to zero as we can. It can't be completely zero, but if we can ban their use by the food industry, at least that will go towards lowering that, and it means that the people who uh, tend to eat more of these things are protected. 
Alan Marion Davis from the UK Faculty of Public Health. Now, wassailing is a West Country tradition that predates Christianity. It involves singing to apple trees to ensure they bear a rich crop in the coming season, as Hilary Osborne found at Cider Maker Gamers Orchard in Stewley in Somerset. The wassail is a ceremony which is to bless the trees in the orchard to try and ensure we have as good a cider harvest this year as possible. Over the course of the evening we're going to see a wassail queen and there's going to be singing and at the moment there's a big bonfire and everyone's drinking mulled cider. I think we're just about to go and have a practice of the wassail song. Well good evening, 2010 Gamers Wassail. Yeah! All right, wassail song, please. <laughs> Apple tree, we wassail thee. I'm Bob Cork, I'm the Site General Manager of the Gamer Cider Company. Wassailing dates back many, many, many years ago and was originally a pagan ceremony. It's traditionally held on the 12th night, which is the 17th of January, because it's based on the old Julian calendar. So 12 days after Christmas Day, which was traditionally on the 5th of January. And two main objectives. One is to get rid of all the evil spirits that may cause problems with the growth of the trees, etc. And the other is to actually encourage the good spirits. Uh, we do that by feeding toast to the robins. We also give something back to the tree. So we give some of the cider that we've made during the year, pour it around the roots of the tree to give it the taste. And so it, the tree actually knows what it's producing and what it's giving. Then we make an awful lot of noise, fire shotguns into the trees, scare away all the evil spirits. And you can see them leave the orchard in their droves. They don't want anything to do with us when we're doing that. Wassail Queen's been born aloft in the procession towards the tree. It's really foggy, but we can just see her in the distance. And when she gets there, apparently she's going to dip some toast in some cider and then throw it into the tree. Okay, now we've got to make a lot of noise to get rid of the evil spirit. So we're banging sticks together and apparently someone's going to shoot something. What we know is that both the company and the orchard's going to do very, very well for the forthcoming season. And is it uh, true that the snow is actually quite good for the orchard? Oh, indeed, yes. The fact that we've got a nice cold January, the trees here are in their dormancy. The cold weather will keep the bugs down. The trees are hibernating, as it were, so they're not worried. But it does mean that they're going to wake up at the right time. They're going to go forward and they're going to bud and produce the fruit and they're going to come into blossom. So the fact that we've got the right weather at the right time of year is perfect for them. Combined with the wassail, it all bodes well. Hilary Osborne reporting. 
Guardian Daily was produced today by Ian Chambers and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Listener.